We always start with our review. So in First John, what do you remember about chapter one? Jesus was the word of life. He was at the beginning of creation. So John wanted to put that one aside, make sure everybody knew that. Jesus brought the way to have fellowship with God. And the result of that is eternal life. So that's the ultimate gift we talked about. And John wanted to make sure that everybody understood that the apostles were eyewitnesses to everything, but, but specifically to his physical resurrection. And then he had ended the chapter talking about the fact that believers have sin, but they should avoid sin. So a lot of practical things were laid out in that first chapter. Then we moved on to chapter two, and what was the thing that started chapter two for us? Jesus is our propitiation, that really big word that we spent a long time developing and talking about and what else did the scriptures have to say. Basically, the propitiation was Jesus on the cross, wrath that I deserved poured out on him. And that was the propitiation. Uh, what else do you remember about chapter two? Well, he starts with the two opposing things that cannot coexist. So he said, you cannot love the world and God at the same, they're mutually exclusive. You really are gonna fall into one or the other. What else did he say? He starts talking about truth. He starts using the word truth a lot. And he says that the truth will, it, it leads to the eternal life. And that is found in Jesus Christ. Once you have the truth that you find through Jesus Christ, it will lead you to love others and practice righteousness versus the lie that was out there that is still out there that denies the deity of Christ or the practice of righteousness or opens the door to the practice of sin. He said, be prepared to deal with false teaching and false teachers in the church. So really at the bookends of chapter two, propitiation, who Jesus is and took the wrath, ending with, don't you allow any false teachers in to tell you wrong. And everything in between was truth, truth, truth. That's chapter two. Then we talked about, we took, a, we took a little time to spend some time in talking about the tenets of Gnosticism, which would have been the specific false teaching, or at least one of them, that was present in that day. It's taken many forms since then, and it exists today. But we talked about the five basic tenets, which we said were what? What are the basic tenets of Gnosticism? First one is knowledge versus the virtue. And that's the easy one because the Gnostics, the word Gnostic stands for knowledge, right? So it's the knowledge versus the life lived out. What was the second tenet? Special. There are special people who can attain special knowledge to give us special revelation. And he said, that's not true. We all have the same spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit when we become believers. There's not some hierarchy for interpretation. What was the third one? All right, that God could not possibly have created matter because in matter or in the world around us, we see things that are fallen and sinful. So God could not have possibly created that. So their only conclusion in a philosophical sense was to say, therefore, something else created the creation. God is outside of that creation. That was where their logic took them. Which then led to the fourth tenet, which is deity, God, cannot possibly indwell any part of its creation in flesh. And so that was 
See how it's, it's not a separate tenet, but it is. But it's linked to the philosophical arguments that they used in the third one. So they say flesh can, or deity cannot indwell in flesh. So of course they outright deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, which then leads someone to say, well, if Jesus didn't actually uh, live in a resurrected body, what cannot be true for believers in Jesus? Well, then you don't have that promise either. A very depressing, non-hope-filled system. And that is one of the reasons John's completely against it, because it's false. It did not speak truth to the believers. There was no hope involved in it. So we talked then about what those tenets were, and then we went backwards in chapter one and two, and we went back to see the verses where you could see that was what John was dealing with. And we continued that as we went through chapter three. Do you see how John is contending with this false teaching? why he used these words. He's gonna do the same thing throughout the book and we're gonna do the same thing when we run across it. So then we got into chapter three and we split that one in two because there was so much. So even in my brief review, it's a little bit long. So in chapter three, he identifies the, ch the children of God, right? So he refers to believers as children. He says, we will be resurrected as Jesus was resurrected when he comes back for us. So he tied up a lot of doctrine in there, didn't he? About resurrection and the truthfulness of it and when we can expect it to happen. He wrapped all that up in chapter three. The part of a believer that becomes purified like Jesus was what? The spirit. And we talked about how vital that was to understand in chapter three because it sets the whole tone for the rest of the chapter. You are pure as Jesus is pure when you have the Holy Spirit. So you don't sin in your spirit now. You have the perfected spirit. You don't have the perfected flesh yet, and you will sin there, but you should try not to sin there. That's exactly what John's communicating back and forth. Um, being filled with the living Holy Spirit was referred to as being born again. So we spent some time on that. We walked back into the scriptures where Jesus talked about it with Nicodemus. So we talked about that term. Um, this allows the believer to practice righteousness when you have the Holy Spirit. One of the specific ways that we are to practice righteousness was through what? Love of the lovable? No. Love of the brethren. That was how we were to demonstrate that righteousness. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We spent some time on that and went to other scriptures about what that looked like. Believers are to love one another and to demonstrate this in actions of sacrifice, even to death as Jesus had. So John puts Jesus as the example every single time. And in this one, he does the same thing. He said, all the way up to death, Jesus loved and he sacrificed through death. So when I wanna grumble about what I'm sacrificing <clears throat> versus what anybody else is sacrificing, I'm making my mistake of comparing myself to them. And John says, no, any sacrifice that you make to love the brethren, you need to compare yourself to Jesus. That's, that's the standard you should be using. Well, then I have to be quiet after that because obviously I haven't had to sacrifice to that level. So that was a whole lot, a whole lot of doctrine that we covered, a whole lot of other scriptures that we went to to verify that we were on track with what John was talking about. And that was just chapter three. 
So now we're going to open up into chapter 4. So we're going to start with the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, a lot packed in there. In verse 1, who is John addressing? How does he begin? He said, beloved, and who do we know the beloved to be? Believers, okay? So what, what warning does John give these believers to begin with? Do not believe every spirit. So what spirit is John referring to? But when, so when we talked in chapter three and we talked about being purified like Christ, what spirit did we end up talking about? It's a Holy Spirit, but it's the Spirit inside of us. So in this case, he's still talking about the Spirit world. So where would we find the Spirit residing that he's going to be addressing? It's the Spirit inside of someone. It's the Spirit that lives inside of someone. That's what he's talking about. John is continuing a discussion about the spirit within a person. He hasn't changed topics, in other words. So I'm demonstrating why we said in chapter three he was talking about a spirit in us and that he hasn't changed direction. He's still talking about a spirit that would be in someone. And he's saying to be careful about what the spirit would speak. And that's a spirit inside of someone. Uh, we saw in 1 John chapter 3, 24, so we haven't changed, but he says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So he hasn't changed direction. He's talking about the spirit inside of someone. John has spent time exploring the spirit inside believers and now moves to a discussion of the spirit world in general and says, do not believe that every spirit is the same. Remember we had a little conversation about people who claim to be spiritual and that that in many ways was a real denial of what we talk about when we talk about Jesus. It's like a deflection. So there's gonna be a lot of spiritual people someplace they don't expect to be because they don't understand who Jesus is. The spiritual world is real. What does John tell the believers to do back in uh, chapter four, verse one? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So if you have the Holy Spirit, then you have an ability to test the spirits because that's what he wants to figure out. If you're talking to somebody else who says something, you need to be able to test the spirits. Why do the believers need to test the spirits? He specifically in the verse though says what? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
So he's telling them to test, and now he's telling them why it's important that they test. We can look all around us in many ways. Do we see a lot of people with false prophecy, false teaching out in the world? So it wasn't just in John's day. It's very prevalent in our day as well. This is very specific to what we would need to do. What type of spirit would take the false prophets out into the world, according to chapter 4, verse 1? Not the spirit of God. That's not how they were operating, not what they were operating out of. And the conclusion John makes is that the false prophets would not have the spirit of God. Again, knowing what was going on in their day, if we had a better clue of what was going on, we'd have a better understanding of exactly what was being said, exactly how evil it was, what they were saying about the apostles or about believers. We don't have all that recorded, but we know according to this, John goes out of his way to say, not every spirit's from God. So these false believers or false teachers or false prophets were making some claim to have the same association to God. And John's like... They're not all the same. Not all spirits are the same. And you need to be able to test them because they have gone out with this teaching. Verse two, what is the test to be applied to the spirit world? He says, by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So those who have the Spirit of God, known as the Holy Spirit, will say or confess that Jesus Christ came to men as incarnate and was sent by God. That's the declarative difference that John is pointing out to this group on how to test the spirits. Obviously, that test hasn't changed today. We would look for the same thing. Verse 3. What is the opposite result a test can expose? Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Where does this spirit come from? Seems like tough language, does it not? I mean, I know we have a tough, like, oh, I'm calling that person the Antichrist. John's right here. Just say, you know, John said it. Not me, John. <laughs> John said it. <laughs> The confession of the Spirit is some, in someone is of the utmost importance to believers. If they deny Jesus is the Christ, then that Spirit should be considered an antichrist, basically against Christ, not declaring the truth about who Christ is. Right? We don't have to picture it as the antichrist from the movies or whatever. Antichrist just means they are the antithesis of a revelation of who Christ is. That's who they are. Here's an interesting thing for you to tuck away. Many false religions don't deny Jesus is the Christ outright. Many do. Many do not. Instead, they choose not to confess or acknowledge Jesus is the Christ. They just don't talk about it. Right? If it's not revealed in my literature, then you can't come back and talk to me about it. We don't really talk about that. That's the same thing as denying both of these responses demonstrate the spirit of Antichrist. So what did John acknowledge believers knew about this spirit? In verse three, he says, 
of which you've already heard is coming. So at some point, there'd already been some discussion with these believers to know that an Antichrist was coming or the spirit of Antichrist was coming. This is not the first time they're hearing about it. That's what this revelation right here would tell us. It's not the first time I've already talked to you about this or I know others have already talked to you about this. This is not new news to you. John said it is, it is not only coming, but what else does he say? Now it's already in the world. So it may have been when the discussion had happened before that they were just told that it was coming. It was prophesied to them that it was coming. But in the short period of time from whenever that was revealed to them to what John is telling them is going on, he goes, oh no, it's arrived. It's here. That's the declaration he's making to them now. You heard about it. Oh, but now it's here. In verse four, John encourages the believers how? He says, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. So who are the them in that verse referring to? Those with the spirit of the Antichrist, back to what he'd just been talking about, uh, all the way back up to verse one, the, the, those that he had referred to in verse one as the many false prophets that have gone out into the world. That's the them that he's now referring to in verse four. How had the believers overcome them? And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And how often do we have that scripture thrown out there and memorized and put in devotionals? What is he talking about when he says that here? Greater is he who is in you. Who is the he in you? The Holy Spirit that is in you is greater than the spirit that's in the world. Satan and the Antichrists that are out there. That's why you can be bold because you have the Holy Spirit in you. That's how he's encouraging these believers as they're dealing with the false teaching of their day. How had the believers overcome them? Oh, we already did that. So we talked about who the he is and is the spirit of God. Verse five, what is true about those with the spirit of Antichrist? They're from the world. He makes that very stark comparison. People of the world have what viewpoint? They speak as from the world, right? It's not surprising because they're from the world that they speak, right? If you go to, a, if you have somebody come visit you and let's say they're from France, what do you expect them to speak? French, so you really shouldn't be surprised if they speak French to you, right? When you're talking to unbelievers, when you're talking to somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, what perspective from the world do you expect to hear from them? The world's perspective. We should never be surprised about that. We can be sad about it, but not surprised. And what is the result of these people speaking? The world listens to them. It's like they're wandering around in a world filled with French-speaking people and everybody understands them, right? They come with that spirit, they are of that spirit, they think like that spirit, and others in that same regard will just jump on board with them because that's who they're talking to, other unbelievers. Do you see it all the time in the world around you? All the time. So we know this is exactly what John's talking about because we can also see it happening around us. So it was happening in the day John's writing to these believers as well as it's happening in the world around us. So unbelievers will communicate with the world successfully because they have the same desires springing from the same spirit inside them. 
We find confirmation of that in the scriptures as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Starting in chapter 11, so 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. We talked about that last week. I just want to encourage you again, when you have those frustrations and you're in those communications, just know you're not going to get through to them. Be understanding. They don't have an ability to understand what you are saying. You have the spirit. You have spiritual thoughts. They don't. Not that you still don't share the gospel because that's the only answer is for them to understand that and get the spirit. So they speak the same language. But until then, you're speaking in foreign language and they're not gonna get it. So just be filled with grace and mercy knowing that's what you may be running into. So back in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, what does John say is true in contrast to the world? He said, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. John says the opposite is true. How? He is who is not from God will not listen to us. So what is the outcome of this understanding? By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So now he's talking about spirit of error being the same as the Antichrist or in the false teachers. Again, there's two kinds. And he's, don't you, I just find it very interesting. I wish I knew more about the details, right, of what was going on, but he hits it home again. You have this one, that's, I know that you can respond and listen to what we say if you have the spirit of God. You're gonna hear my words if you have the spirit of God. You're not gonna hear my words if you don't have the spirit of God. And the one, those that don't are the ones that have gone out and they're talking to a bunch of other people who don't have the spirit of God. So John makes a definitive declaration here by stating those who are opposed to what the apostles taught were clearly not believers. He's not worried about political correctness here. He's calling it like he sees it. These men will claim Jesus did not come in the flesh or sent from the Father. This is a clear refutation to the Gnostics teaching that deity did not exist in the flesh. This is true for any other false teaching with this denial. And we're not going to spend a time talking about all the false religions and which ones have it tucked in their philosophies and which ones avoid it. We're not going to spend time there. We don't need to spend time there. You just need to know the truth. So whichever religion that you look into at some point in your life, if it doesn't meet this standard, you would know, oh, false religion. They do not make this declaration about Christ. That's all I need to know. So back in 1 John, we're going to now do verses 7 through 13. So 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. That seems like a lot of repeat, I know. But each thing is a very specific word from John to tie things together. Verse seven, what does John call the believers to do? Let us love one another. Who is the source of this love? Right, that love comes from God. What is true about believers who love one another? Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there's something important that he's trying to tie together here. If you know God, you should be able to love. When you see people love, you know it's God. When they can't love, there's a problem, they need God. That's the simple way to say it. Why doesn't he just say it that way? I don't know. (laughs) To be born of God is to be a believer. And as a believer, that one is to have a relationship or knows with God. The true knowledge of God is demonstrated in the virtue of love. Now, we talked about this before. Can believers do things that look love? Unbelievers do things that look loving and all that? Yes. He's being very specific, and that's why he's kind of done the repeat, and he's going to keep bringing it around. It's like he's circling, and he's going to hit it right on home. So in verse 8, what is true when one professing to be a believer does not love one another? He says, the one who does not love does not know God. And why is that true, according to that verse? For God is love. He's the ultimate source of it. So if you see those around not being able to do that, then you're pretty sure you're looking at somebody that doesn't really abide in God, doesn't know him, doesn't have a relationship with him. Verse nine, because God is love, what is true? He says, by this... The love of God was manifested in this. So he's going to tell us something. God's love can reside in us because of what? God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. He's going to give a demonstration of what God did in love to show us how that love was manifested in us. So he's giving us that, here's what God did for you. This is how we know that he did this. And you can know that because then you'll have the spirit. They're all tied together. They're not separated out. So the term his only begotten son can be translated his one and only. You can find that in the Net Bible and in the NIV. One and only translate monogeth or only born one, which is also used here in 1 John uh, verse 14, that was chapter, or John 1, chapter 14, which we'll read, same author. 
and then in chapter 3.16. So we're going to look at the Gospel of John to see the same words that John uses here in this book of 1 John. There's a lot of me saying John here, so I'm just going to clarify as I go. I'm going to the Gospel of John, first chapter, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's only one. See, and remember, that was one of the things that the false teaching was coming up with. There might be another. Maybe this Jesus was just, I don't know, for the Jews or just, but no, only one. So in the Gospel of John, also in chapter three, we read this, which is probably one of the most quoted verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One and only. There's not going to be another. People don't focus on the one and only. They kind of jump around that verse and focus on a bunch of other stuff. The one and only. That's who Jesus was and is. There's not going to be anything else coming. So Jesus is the only one born of God. There are no others. There is no other way the Father is bringing men to himself. No other religion, no other path, no other way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. John gives an example of what love looks like how. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. So what does John say first is true? Not that we loved God. He wants to make that abundantly clear because a lot of people are very confused about that point back then and now. Somehow they just had this longing and then they came to know God. It's like, mm, no, before God enters in and does the conviction, you did not love God. That is not how that happened. Love did not begin with us towards God and then he, God, responded to us in some way. There are many who would claim to love God without a true understanding that it is possible for us to love God on our own initiative. It is not possible. You are not drawn to love God on your own initiative. It doesn't exist. What was true about God's love first? He loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation. Considering what we just learned about propitiation and spent time on, he sent his son to take on wrath. That's how much. That's the sacrifice that he made. His one and only son to be born to take on the wrath that we all deserved. That's love. I love my son and I'm not really sure what I'd let y'all pour out on him. <laughs> I don't have the heart of God. That's amazing. That's love defined in ways we just have no measurement of, right? We, I can't even fathom that. What was true about God's love first? Oh, we already did that. So we had, we had covered propitiation back in 1 John chapter 2a, if you want to go back there. But the conclusion was after looking at the scriptures, teach about propitiation. Only the death of an innocent man could produce a perfect blood sacrifice to satisfy God's justice. God accepted a substitutionary payment of Jesus's death with his blood in place of our death and blood for our sin. This was completed through Jesus 
And when we believe this, which can only happen by the gift of faith, we are redeemed to God. The death of Jesus with his blood applied for us is propitiation. So that was a summation that I took back from when we did the first John chapter two, a study. So if you want a little more, if you haven't walked through that, go back to that study. But this was the conclusion that we came to for what propitiation is. John's point here is that God provided this out of his love for us. That's the new revelation. He'd already talked about the fact that God had given Jesus as the propitiation. Here he's identifying God's motive out of love. Not that it was a response to our love to God. And in case you're confused on that, we can look at one verse in Romans chapter five, verse eight. Romans 5, eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you were, what do they say? A spark in daddy's eye, an apple in somebody else. Before there was, right? God already had this plan long before you could have possibly said, well, but I loved God first. No, you didn't. You weren't even born when he made the sacrifice for you. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's the ultimate time travel movie. I used to love those. And then I started understanding this and I went, ultimate time travel right here on the cross. He's covered everything. Unbelievers can have a desire for eternal things and in the religious efforts might feel a love as man for God. They like the idea of love for God. This is expressed in many ways that ultimately focus on self-gratification, how it makes man feel. True love requires a sacrifice of self as God demonstrated sacrificing his son for us while we were still sinners. It is a subtle difference, but the ultimate distinction in comprehending a love for God. You see that subtlety that's there? Love of God, love for God, but because he's already loved not the other way around. 1 John 4, verse 11, this is an example of love provided by God. What should believers do? If God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. So he's done this whole crescendo of building up about all the importance of loving God and why God demonstrated how he's this great example only to end with, go love one another. Sounds so simple. So if God loved us without regard for our love first, we should love one another in the same manner. This is the sacrificial love a believer is able to express for other believers because we have the love of God in us. Think about that. Let that resonate in your heart. That's some tough stuff. I mean, it's easy for me. I mean, I love all kinds of people. They've done all kinds of things for me. They've come up to me. They've been, but do I love the ones that don't meet those worldly standards that I might have? Not every moment. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) But that's the standard that I should be meeting. And I have an ability to do it because I have his spirit and his love. So when I don't, guess what happens? There's conviction. Because God demonstrated it first. Verse 12, what is the truth about God? 
So now he's going to talk about, we've never seen God. To this time, we've never seen it. John has also described this in his gospel, which we would expect him to have some, you know, complimentary things in the two writings. So in the book of John, chapter one, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained to him. So nobody saw God, but through Jesus, Jesus came to demonstrate himself, oh, and to explain God to humanity. That's what Jesus did. So back in 1 John, and I repeat these because I'm going back between the gospel and then we're back in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. What way has God provided for men to see God? If we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When God abides in us, his love is demonstrated in us as we love one another. God's love is perfected when it is replicated in us. In other words, it's seen, it's demonstrated. Just like Christ demonstrated God by his very existence, even though we couldn't see God, we knew a lot about God because of how Jesus demonstrated him. John is saying, you believers who have the Holy Spirit, you who experience the love of God, I should be able to see that manifested in you loving one another. You have the ability to do that. True love is not an emotion. And again, we have a hard time. We have to break down all the different ways that love can be expressed in different languages because we just have the one in English. And I don't need to do that. Love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is doing the right thing when you don't feel like doing the right thing. Loving your husband when you don't feel like. Doing what you're supposed to do as the wife when you don't feel like it. Doing for your children when you don't feel like it. When you won't get the warm fuzzies from it. Doing for the brethren. Doing in action. That's the demonstration of love. Verse 13 Why are we able to love one another? And I mean love at the level he's talking about here. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he gave us his spirit. Does that mean because there's times that I don't exhibit that, that suddenly the Holy Spirit's gone from me? No, it just means I'm not abiding in the way I need to, to express it. But if I see somebody who's not able to do this ever, John's saying, you might want to question what you're looking at. You might want to question whether there's a Holy Spirit. Again, is it for us to do this? It's never about us doing this. It's about us doing this. For the one who's unable, maybe that person should start with the question. But for those around us, we might want to have some boundaries. We might not want to listen to them as teachers, right? Those, there are some things for discernment, but you got to be careful where you go with it so that you don't leap into legalism. It is only because we have his spirit or what we call the Holy Spirit in us that we are able to love one another. Confirmation can be seen in Romans chapter five, verse five. Romans five, five. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Could it be more picture perfect than that description? 
He's poured it out in you. A believer knows he abides in God when he can love other believers with the love of God because it has been poured out in his heart through the Spirit. You know when you're loving somebody that's not loving or lovely or any of the other positive words out there. And you can step away and go, okay, Lord, that was you. That was your love being demonstrated because I didn't feel it. I wasn't having the warm feelings. That was you responding and I know it. You know when that's happened in your life. Back to 1 John, this nice, easy, gentle study. Chapter four, verses 14 through 21. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Do you think John was experiencing a problem with love by some in the church claiming to be believers? I think he's drilling this point home because it was a big problem in the early church. In verse 14, he says, no one has seen God, but John says what? We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior. This is what John said in the first three verses of chapter one. Did he not? We have seen the son. And he gave all the ways, all the ways they saw the son. We were eyewitnesses to that. So we've seen the son. The son is to be what? In that verse 14. The savior of the world. He saw the son. The apostles saw the son this son that's to be the savior of the world. They witnessed it with their own eyes. He's again testifying to it. He's again dealing with all the ridiculous teaching that was going on about deity and flesh and all the nonsense that was out there. We can only understand the sacrifice of God for our salvation through faith. It doesn't come because we were great intellectual people. Not that we can't be considered smart, that's not the point. It only comes through faith. There is no other way it happens. It is because we have seen this that we testify to the world as a witness. That is what he's saying. Even for the apostles, they had to have faith first. It didn't come through them seeing. They're just testifying to having seen. He declares faith is the only way that this can become inside us, can be unknown to us. God only reveals through faith. 
Then he wants to say, yeah, but we also saw him. We just want you all to know that. We're also witnesses to who he was. Verse 15, for those who have not seen with their own eyes, they can still do what? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. Only those who abide in God and God in them will confess Jesus to be the son of God. What was going on? We do know there was a lot of the false teaching declaring deity can't, couldn't possibly have indwelled the flesh. So he's hitting it hard over and over again. In verse 16, how is the abiding of God in someone demonstrated? It says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. This is another step he's gonna take in the process. We saw him, did that by faith, but these are the things that happened. What are the two things true about God's love for the believer? He says, we know and believed, that was the first thing. This is because God is what? All right, so we know and believed because God is love, we couldn't have known and believed if God wasn't demonstrating that love to us. We have our action there. We know and believe, but it's because God is love that we have that ability. And then what is the result? The one who abides in love abides in God and God in him. It's like, you can't separate these things. They're all intertwined. That's what he's teaching. They're all combined. So only those who abide in God and God in them can demonstrate God's love. You cannot be without the source of God's love and somehow demonstrate God's love. Can unbelievers demonstrate some form of love by our measurements and standards? Sure. But we wouldn't define that as God's love. God's love is through God's people, through God's spirit. And God's spirit only resides in Believers, pure and simple. Verse 17, what is God's, what is John's conclusion from verses 15 and 16? He says, by this, love is perfected. What this is he referring to? What were the things he just talked about in verses 15 and 16? The first one was confessing Jesus is the son of God. That was the first verse, right? That's the simple form. So here we're just kind of summarizing what those two verses said. So the first one is confessing Jesus is the son of God. And then in the next verse, demonstrating God's love. By this, love is perfected in us. Those are the two things that this is referring to confessing Jesus as the son of God and demonstrating God's love. Those two things are the this. When we do these things, what else is true for the believer? So that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Where did that come from? Right, it sounds like it's out of, we've been talking love and love and abiding and love again. And now we're talking about the day of judgment. Somehow John's tying it together here for us though. Hmm, so that we may have confidence. When we do these things, we find this to be true, that we can have confidence. So let's talk about what is the day of judgment. 
Let's look at what the scriptures say about it. How about that? Not a good idea? All right. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 10. We're just going to look at verse 15 there. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for this city. So I didn't read the whole, everything that led up to that. That's a whole other study. But this is Christ talking. And there are some people he's demonstrated some miracles to. And yet those cities don't seem to want to believe that he's whom he claims to be. And so his words to them are, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah because these people would have known what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have had the Old Testament scriptures. They would have known very well what he was talking about. He says the sin that they exhibited and the day of judgment, when they're going to stand before God on the day of judgment, it's going to be worse for you all. You think that had some shock value that day for some people? Maybe. Didn't mean it turned their hearts, but it had to make them think real hard. Second Peter, we find this addressed in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. So Second Peter 2, verses 6 through 9. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, or by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the right unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There's a day of judgment coming for all the unrighteous. Second Peter, also in chapter 3, verse 7, says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So based on these readings of scripture that give us a very definitive uh, time period for what this day is and what it's to be used for. The day of judgment is always used in reference to the day for punishment of the unrighteous and destruction of ungodly men. Well, there's a lot of them. We can jump back now because we're going to see what John was tying in because it seems right. He's doing this flow of love and abiding and more love and then he talks about this whole confidence in the day of judgment. Why is he tying it in like that? So back in 1 John 4, 17, what would it mean for one to have confidence in that day? If I tell you, you can have confidence in the day of judgment, what am I telling you? Am I telling you you'll be judged in the day of judgment? If you have confidence, wouldn't your confidence be you won't be judged in the day? That's the confidence that the believer has. When you have the Holy Spirit, you have all you need to not be afraid of that day of judgment. And those without the Holy Spirit, they need to be worried about that day of judgment. Are just the believers hearing these letters that get written and, and read out loud by John? Who do you think that was a little comment to? 
The unrighteous that are sitting there thinking that they, he's like, well, those that have the spirit, they can have some confidence. What he doesn't turn around and say, and for those of you who don't, right? He doesn't give that conclusion. He lets that go unspoken in his words, but spoken in the heart. That's exactly what John is doing here. And why can the believers have confidence? Because he is, so also are we in the world. So he's, now he's telling you why you can have, he's told you you can have confidence and now he's telling you why you can have that very confidence. Who is the he? Jesus. What is meant by as he is? It would be as Jesus is. And what is true about Jesus now? We talked about this before. He is presently resurrected. He is in his resurrected. He has his resurrected body. He's living the resurrected life. That's why we can have confidence because Jesus is now resurrected. We know we will be. The believer knows he will not endure punishment or destruction in the day of judgment because he confesses Jesus. Believers have full confidence in this. There is no doubt you have a promise from God, the creator, so that you can have confidence. Verse 18, what else is true for the believer when love is perfected in them? He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So why does one have fear? According to that verse, why? He says, because... Fear involves punishment. He spells it out for us. That's why there's fear, because there's punishment. The punishment is brought when? On the day of judgment. So what is true for one who has fear of the day of judgment? If you have fear of the day of judgment, you are not perfected in love. What else is he saying? If you're fearing that judgment, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So God's love has not been perfected in you. If you think you're gonna stand before God in the day of judgment, you need to go back and we need to do the whole gospel over again. When you believe in God, when you have the Holy Spirit, when his love abides in you, you have confidence, you will not be standing in the day of judgment. You will be like Christ, you will be resurrected. That's the confidence, that's the love of God. That's why you don't have fear of that day. Can we have general fear? Well, absolutely. This is a very specific fear. We do not fear standing in front of God on a day of judgment. That's a very unique day only for the unrighteous and ungodly, period. Verse 19, what is true for the believer now? He's back to encouragement now. He's done his little day of judgment thing and now he's back to we... We love, why do we love? Because he first loved us. He's bringing us back. He's gently bringing us back to the whole love talk. There is a difference in a man's natural ability to love and the divine love given and expressed from God. A believer can only express this divine love because we have received it from God first and now have the spirit in us. Otherwise you couldn't reveal a divine love like it's being talked about here. Verse 20, what is a test to know which of these someone is? He's, 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? A liar. Pure and simple. John does not mince words there, does he? Those two things apparently should not be able to coexist. So a believer cannot claim to love God and hate the brethren, just like he cannot claim to know God, but disobey his commands or claim to know God, but deny the truth of him sending his son or, right? Those are mutually exclusive things as laid out by the scriptures. Why is this true? According to 1 John, it says, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Why is the love of the brethren a test for the abiding love of God? He says, because the brethren you can see, the person right in front of you that I put right in front of you is another believer, that person you can't demonstrate love for, but somehow you're gonna claim this God who you've never actually seen, somehow you have love for that. He says, no, when the spirit abides in you, you need to be able to love the one that you've seen. And in that you demonstrate you have love from the unseen and can love the unseen. Are these difficult truths, ladies? <laughs> this is really hard stuff. At the end, does it give you a comfort to know that you have the spirit that can allow you to love and that you don't stand in fear of a day of judgment? That's the amazing thing. The brethren are here in this world now receive the love of God that is in the believer now. When one claims to have the love of God in them but can't demonstrate that love to a believer, they testify to the truth that the love of God does not abide in them. Verse 21, what did John say because of this truth? He says, and this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother. We're gonna spend just a couple minutes there. You thought we were just gonna tidy it right on up. These words that John is referring to come to us from Jesus himself back in Mark. We've talked about them, but we're gonna finish with them today. Mark 12, verses 28 through 31. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So just keep in perspective. The Jewish leaders often tried to answer this question debating among themselves when discussing the Mosaic law. They believed that all the laws were binding. So they didn't question that. But there were some that, that seemed to be more important than others. It was just a common conversation that the religious leaders had of the day. There were those who would try to find a way to sum up some of the significant laws. So again, that was a common thing that was done among the religious leaders of the day. Um, that's what they had tried to do. And Jesus knew about that. And so did the other men that would have been around that time period when Jesus was walking the earth. If you look back before Jesus gives this answer, if you're doing a little research in Mark, 
chapter 12, in verse 13, and I'm just gonna read to you who was sent there. We're not gonna talk about everything that was revealed. In Mark 12, verses 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. So the evil ones of the time, the leaders of Israel, are trying to trap Jesus. So this first thing that happens where there's a question put before Jesus, we know exactly where their hearts are. Of course, he doesn't fall for the trap. He has a great answer. Then we find in verse 18, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began to question him. All right, again, you can look at that in that scripture. We're not gonna do all the detail there, but they put, they're trying to trap Jesus. And again, he has like this amazing answer and they're like, oh, we didn't see that way out. He's amazing. So then in verse 28, which is what we just read, there's a teacher of the law that's there. And he notices what about what Jesus had just, just answered for these two groups of men sent to trap Jesus. What did, uh, in Mark 12, verse 28, what, did he, what does it say that he noticed? He noticed that Jesus had given them good answers. Hmm. So the question of the teacher put before Jesus might've been, but might not have been a trap. There's other things you can read. Most likely he was like the rest of them. But in this case, he really did hope to receive a correct answer because this was something that was debated by these men all the time, trying to find out which thing was really the best. And he thought, man, this guy's smart. He's giving out really good answers. You know what I'm gonna do while I'm here? I'm gonna throw out this question and see what he says to that because I notice he's given good answers. And what he asked Jesus is this. He says, which or what we would define as what kind of commandment is the most important in the mall. So he's also looking for maybe a summation because that's what the other Pharisees and Sadducees and men of the law would be putting out. Jesus doesn't miss a beat, does he? Jesus answered by quoting the Old Testament scriptures of Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. So Deuteronomy six, four through nine, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, mark, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk to them when they sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of the house and on your gates. Do you think he expected the entire law to be written out? No, this is what he's talking about. This commandment that summed it all up, they were to memorize and to teach their sons. Were they to do the other stuff too? Yeah, but it was narrowed down for them. God narrowed it down and Jesus knew that. So Jesus was able to do the summation for this man who asked the question to point back to this to go, let me point you back to your scriptures. Here's the summation right here that you need to know. In verse four, notice who is the people being spoken to when it says, hear, O Israel. How is God defined for Israel later in that verse? He says, the Lord is our God. So the Lord's being defined as Israel's God. This is Israel God, God and is also defined as the Lord is one. There is no specific God spoken of here other than the Lord of Israel. That's the Lord that we're, that we're to focus on that he's talking about. 
in verse five. Now that, now that who knew God has been clearly defined, in other words, Israel, what are the people of God to do? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now that the identity of God moves from our God to the Lord your God. Notice that. It's the God of Israel, because we want to make sure we've defined what God we're talking about. We don't want anybody to be confused, because he's our God. And then he moves your God. When he moves from being the nation's God to your God, this is what I want you to do, to love him with all your heart and your soul and your strength and everything. It's a personal call. The question put forth to Jesus was of all the commandments, which was the most important. The teacher of the law wanted to know which one commandment was the most important. But notice, Jesus gave a second commandment as well. He didn't just stop. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this is also found in the Old Testament. This one's in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When we studied this back in chapter two, because we've already studied this back in chapter two, it was pointed out that after this answer, the teacher asked who his neighbor would be. And Jesus tells the parable, remember, of the good Samaritan. And then we talked about how it ended. And the two last verses after the parable of the Good Samaritan, we looked at it in Luke chapter 10. So verses 36 and 37, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, this is the leader, the teacher that was looking for his answer said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And then Jesus said, go and do the same. Paul gives us the same conclusion in Galatians chapter five, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in a statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul makes it clear we are to demonstrate love for one another by serving one another. This will be contrary to our fleshly desire as we are often drawn to serve ourselves first. Both Jesus and Paul use the same standard when determining what love we already have for ourselves that can be turned into the brethren in love. They both say the way you love yourself. Use that measurement that you have of love for yourself and use that to love the brethren. And we talked about that a little bit last week too, but here it is, front and center again. There is a false teaching in the church today that says we must love ourselves first before we can love others the way that God desires us to love others. There is nowhere you would turn in scripture that this teaching can be found. God is always about getting us to focus outside ourselves. Here in 1 John 4, we are reminded that the first circle of focus is outside ourselves towards who? God. And then the second focus outside ourselves is to the brethren. 
What ways is God revealing to you to make him first in your life? How are you being encouraged to make God first in your heart? How are you being encouraged to make God first in your soul? Or love him with all your might? That's not something for me to fill in because you all got the Holy Spirit. He'll fill that in just fine. What sacrifices will be necessary for you to lead this type of sacrificial life where you can fill in those blanks for God. It happens contrary to your flesh. It is not natural for us to love in that way, but we can do it because we have the spirit and he will draw us there. What ways is God revealing to you to love the brethren as you already love yourself? What ways are you being encouraged to serve the body of Christ in that sacrificial way that you make for yourself each and every day? These two things are interconnected. You cannot claim to love God and then not love the brethren. That is clearly what John is teaching here. There must have been some real awful bickering going on between the false teachers and what they were trying to convince other new converts and other new churches of. And they were naming names and they were calling out the apostles and who knows what other destruction And what is John, do you hear him list anybody's name here at all? Do you see him list any city where the false teaching is going on? He's not about identifying those individuals, is he? He's wanting to talk about when you see this activity, whether it's today or 2,000 years from now, know what you are seeing. The Antichrist at work. You just need to focus on having the truth inside of you. And do you love God with all the things he asks you to love him with? And do you love the brethren? Because if you can't, you need to do some internal work with your spirit.